To paraphrase Socrates, true knowledge exists in knowing you know nothing. And by this standard, you are a genius. Because almost immediately upon landing in a place you knew virtually nothing about, to make a film about a subject you knew virtually nothing about, you somehow use your self-awareness, your true knowledge, if you will, to create a real piece of art. You're listening to 2233, a podcast of exchange stories. Moonlight was set to begin production uh, in September, and the Fulbright was going to send me in September. I couldn't figure out how I was going to solve this problem, because if I left the movie, it was going to do what it did, and I wasn't going to be on it. And if I passed on the Fulbright, I wasn't going to, like, why would you make me make this choice? Then the doctor found a kidney stone, and the first thing he said is, hey, you got a kidney stone, that sucks. And I said, doctor's note! (laughs) This week, a well-timed doctor's note. Columbusing not allowed, and making sure not to pin the butterfly. Join us on a journey from the United States to Hong Kong to create a film like no one's ever seen before. It's 2233. We report what happens in the United States, warts and all. These exchanges shaped who I am. When you get to know these people, they're not quite like you. You read about them. They are people very much like ourselves. And oh, that's what we call cultural exchange. Ooh, yes. My name is Andrew Havia. Uh, I'm a filmmaker from Miami, Florida. Uh, I was on a Fulbright U.S. student research grant uh, to Hong Kong in 2015-2016. I'd known about the program, but knew almost nothing other than that very fancy people got them and figured like, well, hell, if they're holding the orientation, maybe I can find a way to sneak into this party. From that point, made it a mission to apply where I thought I could do something unique and something that I wanted to do. And I really wanted to live abroad and the opportunity to apply for a grant in Hong Kong that allowed me to make a a, a documentary about a contemporary art fair called Art Basel uh, and its impact on Hong Kong's art community was my my elevator pitch. What's significant is that in 2011, I'd made a documentary for public television in Miami about Art Basel and its impact on Miami's art community. Because Art Basel is the largest and most prestigious contemporary art fair in the world. So I'd made uh, a fairly conventional documentary about Art Basel Miami Beach. I followed a certain number of artists. I looked at an artist who was you know, putting on their own show. I looked at an artist who was being you know, feted by the Miami Art Museum, the establishment. I looked at you know, some of the people collect, you know, collecting and what it was for an artist to be in this space. And I tried to make a documentary about art that was from the bottom up. Instead of the collectors and the moneyed and the powered interests talking about what they liked, I tried to find the artists talking about what their lives were like proud of the movie, but it's a, a form-fitting template. It's, a, it's what a movie for public television looks like. So here I am applying for the Fulbright, and I see that Hong Kong has just launched their Art Basel. So I propose this sequel to this documentary I'd made, saying that, well, I've done this movie about Miami. I'm very interested in seeing what is going on in Hong Kong, and I think I could compare and contrast. 
So I wrote uh, a grant and then, you know, you have to spend all summer finding your sponsor in the foreign country at the university that you need to sign off on the grant. And I found every Fulbrighter in Hong Kong and was rejected by every one of them and was losing hope because the application was due and you had to have this letter. Then I find a woman at Hong Kong Baptist University, an economic art historian studying specifically the impact of international art markets on local art communities. I write her a letter. She responds almost an email. She responds almost immediately and says, this sounds amazing. Where do I sign? A lot of stuff happens. I, so I, I, I get the grant. Some life stuff happens. Independent from making independent documentaries, I also produce movies. So in this period, uh, the most challenging part was that I got the grant and I was also, I'd spent the last several years setting up a movie called Moonlight. And Moonlight was set to begin production uh, in September. And the Fulbright was going to send me in September. I couldn't figure out how I was going to solve this problem because if I left the movie, it was going to do what it did and I wasn't going to be on it. And if I passed on the Fulbright, I wasn't going to, like, why would you make me make this choice? Then the doctor found a kidney stone. And the first thing he said is, hey, you got a kidney stone. That sucks. And I said, doctor's note. <laughs> so I was able to push to December. So Moonlight wraps production. And like two weeks later, I moved to Hong Kong. But because of those three months that I shifted, I missed the cohort. Like I didn't show up when everyone else did. I missed some of the, you know, the primary orientation stuff and also set my research back three months. So the time I had, I spent having to learn uh, how to live in a space, get my apartment settled, figure out what I was doing, I was already rushing to catch up because the art fair was happening happening in March. There's no moving that, so I had to be ready. I had to identify my subjects, the artists that I was gonna follow, but I also had to filter them. In Miami, I knew who I wanted to follow because I'd grown up in that city. I'd known those artists for years. In Hong Kong, I had none of that, so I had to very quickly learn it. I realized I was not gonna be positioned to make the movie that I had proposed in the way it deserved. Like there's a there's a good version of that movie and then there's a terrible version of that movie. And the terrible version of that movie where uh, as a filmmaker, I, I assert some sort of authority. I'll make a movie that misrepresents, I mean, who, who do I know is um, credible? Who is the actual expert? The idea of Columbusing, the idea of being a white Western uh, person going to a, a foreign culture and then proclaiming like, I discovered all this is something I was very aware of. And I was like, I don't want to be that guy because all of my privileges show up in that space. Like I'm able to be that guy. I've won this grant, I have the authority to do it. I have a camera and uh, you know, I'm an American, damn it. And that was something I was just very aware of. So not eager to make that movie. And I realized as the movie that I was trying to make was was falling away from me, the another movie presented itself, which is the movie that I was actually, ultimately that I made. The great thing about Fulbright is there's an incredible amount of freedom with the project that you make, right? You propose a certain thing, but it's not like I'm being checked on by my grant advisor and saying at the at the consulate in Hong Kong wasn't watching my footage and making sure I was staying on task. I knew going in that I would have I mean, an extraordinary amount of rope. So I'd already been percolating on this idea of like, well, how do I tell this story in a way that's gonna be fun for me? Because I've made that documentary before and having made the documentary, the one I made in 2011, had done well, but nobody heard of this movie and no one's gonna watch it. Having just explained it to you, you're not running to, to go download it. So I wanted to make a movie that would make more of a splash. I wanted to make a movie that I thought could play festivals. What that movie would look like, I didn't know. While I was shooting, I was also assembling an edit. I was taking my footage and I was trying to build it and I was experimenting. So the scenes were all different ideas that I was trying and collectively the movie was a disaster. It wasn't meant to be, but it was a very unfinished experiment.
I'd gone to uh, an art show in North Point in Hong Kong, and the idea was that the curators were going to be the performers. So instead of taking a background role, they were going to be front and center, and they were going to be the artists who would create the work. Uh, and it was a really fun idea for a show. And at some point in the middle of the show, uh, a disco ball drops from the ceiling, and it became uh, like a discotheque. It became a party, and all these artists are dancing and celebrating, and it was a really fun moment. And I was trying to figure out how I could communicate the fun of that moment without pinning the butterfly. Let me explain that metaphor for a second. I think the thing about art, specifically making films about art, the challenge is how do you how do you express what makes the art interesting without uh, over explaining it. The minute you talk about why the art is good is the minute you break the spell. But it is very hard to convey the the power of great art through lecture. It's like comedy. You, you, you can't, like, uh, as an engineer, you can understand why the joke works and really appreciate that. But then you have to be an engineer. If you are not an engineer, you just want to laugh. So when you pin the butterfly, you've collected it and you've killed it. It, it. It's a very fine line. So I was trying to figure out how to explain this art show as something that was fun to participate in. And I had just gone to an actual nightclub in my social private life outside of the documentary, but was filming because I'd started obsessively filming all the things that I was doing, thinking I would find a way to make a movie here. And uh, this friend of mine uh, was leaving Hong Kong and we went to this party and I and I started cutting together the actual dance footage with the art dance footage. And, and in that moment, I realized there might be a way for me to show how my private life dovetails with the art experience. Therefore, whatever I'm experiencing privately could illuminate the, the more public art experience. So if I saw an art piece that made me think of the windswept mountainscape of Hong Kong, I could cut to a shot of the windswept mountainscape in Hong Kong. And using montage and editing and, and you know the techniques of film, I could break the mode of a documentary, which was you explain a thing and then you put footage on top and you call it B-roll. So if I say, I looked at a fountain and I show you a fountain, then you see the fountain and you go, ah, that's a fountain. And the level of repetition and the level of monotony in that was something I wasn't interested in exploring. So that moment, I remember that moment because I'd been committed to going to a barbecue and the guy, I hadn't met, he did, we hung out like once and he invited me to this barbecue and he texted like, hey, are you coming? And I said, no, sorry, I'm stuck at work. And he got really mad because he bought a plate of vegetables for me. And I was like, I'll pay you the six bucks. I'm in the middle of a thing. Like, I don't know what you want. Very weird experience, but I will happily trade someone who got really angry over a plate of asparagus for the epiphany that was like, I don't know how the movie fits this moment, but I understand that there's a movie here. And if I can figure it out, we'll unlock the puzzle. So once I got that moment, I understood there was a movie here. I did not know how to get there. And I spent the rest of my trip editing this, what, what I think is fair to call an assembly. But I knew that moment. I wanted to protect that moment. So then I came back from Hong Kong on October 1st and immediately shipped a hard drive to uh, a friend of mine who ended up becoming both the producer and editor on the film, Carlos Rivera, because he and I had we'd done a screening uh, with a couple of friends. And, and everyone else was like, oh, yeah, good movie. Like if you, if you submitted that to a festival and I saw it, I'd be happy. Like, mission accomplished. And Carlos came up afterward and said, listen, I like what you're trying to do, but I, like, I think there's a, I think we can push this. And I, I just kind of love the audacity of that. I love the, like, like, all right, listen, C minus. But over here, A plus, come on. We spent the next two and a half years. Like, together, we figured out how to make the movie look the way it was. The movie reflects my experience in Hong Kong. And, and Carlos was able to position himself as part editor, part therapist. He, he insisted, like, 
looking, watching you look at a painting is only interesting if I understand why you're looking at that painting and what is going on in your life. And making the movie about me was not necessarily my first instinct, but sort of the way a music producer guides uh, a musician is like, hey, I like that riff, try it again. Go in that direction, Push, pushing in that way. Um, over two and a half years, the movie evolved into what it is. was that having made the documentaries the way you're supposed to make them, I was actively trying to make the opposite of that movie. And Carlos, outside of this film, you know, works in a, in a very high level of television where you have to make things a certain way, you have a certain time frame. And, and the way he and I would talk about it, because we did the project over two and a half years, we'd do a thing the way you're supposed to do it and come back energized to say, well, I don't want to do it that way. What if we didn't cut to the moment? What if we found a way to cut to that? So the, I don't want to say sloppiness, but the, the unexpected nature of the movie was our hardcore reaction like our, our visceral reaction and response to the other work we were doing. And then again, the rule was like, I wanted to make a film that allowed us to do the thing you're not supposed to do. So you're not supposed to have a robot narrator. Like that's a rule. Like everyone's like, you're going to make that a person, right? And I said, no, I'm keeping the robot. You know, in an interview, in a documentary about art, you're supposed to interview the people you're talking about. We didn't interview anybody. Partly because Fulbright, while wonderful in so many ways, is not exactly like a deeply pocketed, production grant. It's not like I had a half a million dollars to make a documentary. I had the money I didn't spend on eating. And I, for better or worse, eat three times a day. So the, the amount of money that was available was enough to do the thing with what I had and not a penny more. So I couldn't bring in lights and do a proper interview. I couldn't do those things. So I leaned into that uh, and tried to shoot things that I thought would be interesting. And then we tried to cut them in a way that like, when you're stuck with those pieces, how do you put them together? You're going to get a different puzzle simply because they're so oddly shaped. One of the things that's so fascinating about Hong Kong is that it has such a well a well established expat community. It's very easy to live in that bubble. Partly because of the language. Like if I wanted to stick to places that only had English menus for food, I could do that. I would spend 20 American dollars every meal and I'd be surrounded by Westerners. And that life exists and plenty of people live it. And then if I want to like go on the wild side and try a more local place, uh, there are places that have a split menu, English and and Chinese, you know, those are half the price, you know, 10, $12 American. But if you don't speak any Cantonese, you're not going to a fully local place that has no English menus where no one speaks English and the price is four bucks. Because of the documentary, I, I was privileged enough that I got to break that bubble. I had reason to hang out with locals who were working on a thing, all of whom, you know, spoke English, were highly educated, were artists. It's not like I was in an unfamiliar environment, but I was invited into spaces that if not for the camera and the purpose of the documentary, I would not have been invited. And I made friends outside of the expat universe. And that was one of the one, frankly, one of the great things about Fulbright is that it gave me a purpose. You can travel and do a thing and then you're a tourist. But the fact that I had a project that I was uh, intent to accomplish, the fact that I had I had a reason to be there meant I was able to transcend sort of the, the expat bubble. This was my first time living abroad. That was, frankly, one of my reasons for applying for the Fulbright in the first place. It helped me understand the thing. It's a little bit like a fish can't see water. The advantage to being out of it allowed me to understand how many basic assumptions I have just as an American. Living in Hong Kong and on the Fulbright gave me the, the framework to understand what I bring with me 
Uh, and I think, frankly, the movie is a, an attempt to discuss sort of that idea. And realizing when I don't have it, it doesn't mean I'm worse, it just means I'm, I'm different. If there's a lesson I'll take away from this Fulbright and from this film, it's this idea that there is no rule book and there is no plan. And the opportunity uh, I think that we all have is to figure out how to navigate within the system that exists to achieve the results we want. And I think the opportunity there is that everything is malleable. The way it works is the way it works now or the way it's supposed to work is not the way it has to work. And a lot of times what I saw in this, specifically the idea that like, look, there's a grant that gave me a thing. No one told me I had the freedom to do it, but I realized I did, so I took it and was able to make something that has has was an extraordinary creative experience, but so far has been a wonderful, like the film has been well received so far. We're playing at South by Southwest. Like we're doing these things that um, indicate I'm on the right path. And in life, things are valid. Other professional choices I've made, instead of moving to LA to make films, I moved to Miami because I believed in a cause about telling stories in Miami, uh, led to Moonlight, uh, which did very well for itself and has made my life very different than it was before. Like the idea that going against conventional wisdom to try the thing that isn't supposed to work. If you do it right, maybe it could. The reason conventional wisdom is that way is because it's easier to do the things that you're supposed to do the way you're supposed to do it, the way people have always done it. Doesn't mean uh, the harder road isn't, doesn't also get you there. In fact, it might get you there and be an incredible journey in the process. And my appreciation for that is I understand that if that message gets out more, if, it, if that's optimistic to me, it might be harder, but it'll be worth it. And frankly, that's when it gets exciting. I think the, the conventional wisdom is, is um, just kind of boring. Twenty two thirty three is produced by the Collaboratory an initiative within the U.S. State Department's Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs, better known as ECA. My name's Christopher Wurst. I'm the director of the Collaboratory. 2233 is named for Title 22, Chapter 33 of the U.S. Code, the statute that created ECA. And our stories come from participants of U.S. government-funded international exchange programs. This week, Andrew told the story of how he used his Fulbright grant to create his recently released documentary, Leave the Bus Through the Broken Window, which made its public premiere at the South by Southwest Film Festival the day before our interview. For more about this wonderful film, check out leavethebusfilm.com. For more about Fulbright and other ECA exchange programs, check out eca.state.gov. We encourage you to subscribe to 2233. You can do so wherever you find your podcasts. You can also Leave us a nice review while you're at it, and we'd love to hear from you. You can write to us at ecacollaboratory at state.gov. That's E-C-A-C-O-L-L-A-B-O-R-A-T-O-R-Y at state.gov. Photos of each week's interviewee and a complete episode transcript can be found at our webpage. That's at eca.state.gov slash 2233. Special thanks this week to Andrew for taking time from his busy screening schedule at South by Southwest in Austin, Texas. I did the interview with Andrew at Austin's famous Driscoll Hotel and edited this segment. Featured music was Spunk Lit, Spring Cleaning, and Sunday Lights by Blue Dot Sessions, and Something Elated by Broke for Free. Music at the top of each episode is Sebastian by How the Night Came, and the end credit music is Two Pianos by Tagirlius. Until next time. You enjoyed it, so I'm going with it. <laughs>